I dream of the day when everybody has health care, right? And, and there are many paths by which we could achieve that. Obamacare did a heck of a lot to help American citizens achieve health care when they otherwise couldn't afford it. Um, my personal belief is that as a society, we have to prize giving everybody in the country access to health. Welcome everyone to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies told by doctors working in primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tannick. Hey everyone, I hope everyone had a lovely Thanksgiving, and as the days get shorter and colder, I hope we can all be healthy and in good spirits through the winter months. This episode is with Dr. Carolyn Chen. I actually said in the intro to the last podcast that the next episode, this episode, would be a family medicine resident, Dr. Emily Tomasino. However, we had some scheduling issues and some technical difficulties, and we are still working to make that podcast recording happen. So please keep an eye out for that one in the future. And as for now, let me introduce our guest for this episode, Dr. Carolyn Chen. She went to medical school at UCLA and came out to Colorado for her residency in family medicine at Swedish Medical Center. She is now a family doctor at Clinica Family Health Services, where she serves as a primary care physician for many patients who are medically underserved. Our conversation focused mainly on that exact topic, caring for the underserved and ethnic minority populations. We discussed her career in primary care and her philosophy towards many aspects of medicine. We talked about healthcare disparities and how our healthcare policy in this country play into our health outcomes. And I gave Dr. Chen a magic wand and asked her how she would change the healthcare system in America. And that snippet that you heard at the top of the show was a clip of the beginning of her answer to that, that question. I could tell right away that she's truly compassionate, smart, and insightful about her life and career in medicine, and she loves to teach the young healthcare professionals out there. And she told me to have listeners to the show to feel free to reach out to her for mentorship or for anything else at her work email, which is cchen at clinica.org. A couple of themes kept coming up in our conversation. One of those was the importance of knowing your patients really well, forming tight doctor-patient relationships, and maintaining continuity of care. And I was reminded of a quote from Sir William Osler, who people kind of talk about as the father of modern medicine, I believe. I actually more think of him as kind of the Mark Twain of medicine. He's just got so many quotes and great quips. And one of those kept coming to mind 
as we were talking. And that quote is, it's more important to know which patient has a disease than it is to know which disease a patient has. And to me, that says, really get to know your patient, which is a topic we kept uh, dancing around during our interview. And I think it's a simple sentiment that we can all get behind. Okay, so let's stand on the shoulders of the great William Osler and get to my conversation with another physician with a lot of wisdom and intelligent things to say. Here is Dr. Carolyn Chen. don't want to waste any time because we have so many topics to get into. We have listener questions. We have all sorts of different uh, um, roads to go down here with you. So can you just give us a little bit of uh, introduction to yourself, your background, upbringing, childhood, and, and we can uh, go from there. Absolutely. Thanks, Ross, for having me on Primary Care Podcast. Yeah. Um, so my name is Carolyn Chen. I work at Clinica Family Health. I guess you could say I got into medicine because it was a dream of my mother's to do that. Okay. And I went down the road of, you know, trying to be pre-med and getting everything done. And interestingly, it was not until I was at uh, medical school at UCLA and it was the summer between my first and second year that I really realized that I wanted to do it for myself. Mm-hmm. I um, did two rotations that were just summer learning preceptorship opportunities. And I knew I wanted to do primary care because that's why I went into it. But I didn't know what kind. So there was a grant through then the California Academy of Internal Medicine Docs, and another one through the California Academy of Family Physicians, each one for a month, each one a thousand bucks. I figured I could get by on two thousand bucks during a summer, bumming a place to stay. So I did those two, and it was really the second one, the one in family medicine, that really cemented my motivation for why I want to do this for me. It wasn't incredible experience. That's awesome. Um, I really like, um, the idea that you were exploring, even though you kind of already, you said you already knew that you wanted to be a a primary care doc or a family doc before that even. I think there's something really, um, gracious about wanting to serve the community that somebody's in and knowing people. Mm -hmm. and getting to know them across their lifespan and not just see them for a certain problem or certain time period, but really staying with them that appealed to me. And I fear that, except for primary care, um, which has undergone some change in this country, it seems like many specialties don't have that as a component of their relationship with their patients. And it's really something to be treasured. 
Absolutely. I uh, can speak to that because I was just on my family med rotation and now I'm on my inpatient internal med rotation um, as a third year medical student. And uh, I mean, obviously, the, the setup and just the context and the setting is is quite different. But there is just something way different and, and really cool about some of these patients who came to the, the family doc I was with. And they're like, oh, I've been with Dr. Judd for 27 years or you know whatever it was mm -hmm. since he was a, a baby just out of residency <laughs> or or he delivered some of our patients kids you know something like 19 20 25 years ago and that is really amazing it's so cool and uh, some of the patients came in being like hey you delivered uh kyle remember that and he's like i actually i forgot that but i kind of remember now you know Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, contrast that to inpatient medicine when you're on the floor and you're there and continuity with the patient is maybe you get to see them, you know, three days in a row or on three shifts in a row or something like that. That's the way my third year was, too. You see who's there and you're kind of confined to a place with a particular area of specialty or expertise. And I recently heard about a student at um, University of Colorado Medical School, and I've heard about this from a different colleague. I'm sure it's a trend. Um, that colleague works in Asheville, North Carolina, mm -hmm. where third and fourth years actually stay with a cohort of patients, and they are tasked with finding who they are, you know, probably somewhat more ill maybe older patients and following them through their various illnesses. And so that way they keep some continuity with them, which is fascinating to me, but I can't really wrap my head around it yet because it wasn't my experience. Yeah. That would be definitely different than uh, what I'm going through as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Next topic I want to get into is uh, residency. Um, we mm -hmm. kind of at least talked about picking a specialty or, you know, noticing the differences between different specialties, at least, and how, uh, you know, in, in our society, that internal medicine is different than family medicine. But uh, you chose to do residency here in Colorado at Swedish Hospital. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like? Yeah, I had a great time there. It was from 2003 to 2006, quite a while ago. Mm -hmm. But at that point, it was a 666 program, six, uh, six residents in each year. I think now it's six, it since expanded to 999. So it was a fairly smaller residency at that point. And I was interested because it had quite a, a focus on outpatient office medicine. Mm -hmm which I think is different in a lot of ways from learning just um, kind of the hard facts of inpatient medicine. So some things that I think were really unique about it that I can speak to now that have really given me an advantage are the way that um, the preceptors had a relationship with their patients that was very professional, mm -hmm. but also very comfortable they also had been taking care of their patients for probably a few decades and their patients were gracious enough to have us new residents in on their medical history and moreover their stories mm -hmm. 
So I found it a really uh, intriguing and different kind of residency than I had seen in the other places that I had interviewed at. That's cool because I'm I'm kind of in this place myself. I know a lot of other people mm-hmm. are as well of thinking, okay, it's one thing to evaluate a residency program on paper and try to differentiate different programs that are maybe in the same geographic location or similar in other ways. Um, but you're saying you got a, a real different vibe from uh, Swedish than you did from other places that you were at. I did. And I think it's really hard to quantify the differences between different residencies. And I think you're right. On paper, it's hard to tease out. And I was one of those uber nerds who had this crazy spreadsheet that was like (laughs) 10 programs that I visited and like 50 facets that I thought was important. And then I like came up with this crazy score at the end and, you know, like probably my top five places that I put in the rank list, you know, we're all neck and neck, like within five points of each other. And then I just had to toss it all out the window and follow my gut and say, where do I really want to be? And I think part of it, interestingly, is who I want to be with, because those are some of the deepest bonds that I have still. Definitely. Definitely. I've heard it said that you, you got to find your people when you're choosing a residency, not just mm-hmm. specialty, but the program itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so take us from the, the journey from being a resident to starting a career in um, the underserved world in, uh, as a PCP. Yeah. So there was this experience in med school that I just kind of used as my beacon for what I wanted to do. And so as I was looking for a practice, I was probably at that time subconsciously looking for a practice that really mirrored this experience that I had between first and second years. It was primarily Spanish-speaking underserved urban at that time Los Angeles where I was working and Mm. it was just this sense of like warmth and community that the care providers had you know no matter if they were residents attendings nurses everybody they had with their patients and the patients felt at ease you know even talking about their immigration status or their financial difficulties mm-hmm. with their providers that really meshed with what I was being taught about, you know, when patients don't pick up their meds or don't, you know, don't engage in care, quote unquote, adherence. And so that was a real uh, motivator and goal for the kind of practice that I wanted to be in. So when I looked, I knew that I essentially wanted to look for a federally qualified health center, a community health center. Mm -hmm. So I started looking at places like Denver Health. And interestingly enough, all of Colorado and generally all of the United States is just divvied up, kind of like school boundary lines, if you were to have it like that. And so each area is comprised of various zip codes. And they just get assigned to whatever community health center, you know, at the inception of this wants to pick up those areas. So when I interviewed at Clinica Family Health, 
it matched those um, those waypoints that I wanted to find that it was urban and so had access to subspecialty care if people needed it. Mm-hmm. It was underserved. It was primarily Spanish speaking just because I don't really speak any other languages. Mm-hmm. So it had a good mix of Spanish and English, which were are the ones that I'm fluent in. Okay. And it really had as its mission trying to take care of a community of people and keeping them feeling like they were a part of the care team as we should have them be and not just an object of our care. That's awesome. Uh, did you did you get training in residency that kind of um, set you up for success in, in being able to deliver care to the low socioeconomic uh, population? You know, I would say that I didn't insofar as other people in Colorado might have joined something like a Denver health track mm-hmm. or a rural medicine track where they do cesarean sections and endoscopies. And I didn't because I chose something that was, you could portray it as a suburban solo practitioner, um, brick and mortar family practice. Mm -hmm. And yet I think those skills transferred over really well because, you know, what we all really want when you meet somebody as your care provider is to be heard and to... Um, somebody that you think is trustworthy. Absolutely. Um, so are you kind of saying that you didn't get, um, the training in say procedures and, um, like you said, C-sections, endoscopies, uh, and other procedural stuff and kind of foregoed that, forewent that, um, for more of, um, training and interpersonal communication. Yeah, I like that characterization. I think that everywhere has its strengths, but I wouldn't say the corollary. I wouldn't say that it's a weakness necessarily not to receive training in an area that you're really interested in because we are all adult learners. Mm -hmm. And even just to get into an allopathic or osteopathic school requires a huge amount of dedication. So just because the environment doesn't give you a tool that you need for your future, it doesn't mean that you're not going to acquire that somewhere later. Mm -hmm. And necessity is the mother of invention. So you get it along the way if that's what you're looking for and that's what you need. Totally. Totally. So, um, so you started right out of residency working at Clinica. Yeah, it was 14 and 14 years and some change ago. Cool. And I got the contract and it was, you know, contract for starting salary and I'd never seen a salary, you know, in residency life or med school or whatever odd jobs I had before like that. Um, got a house up on the North end of town and here we are 14 years later, essentially doing the same thing that I did when I walked into those doors. Yeah. So you really committed to that lifestyle and and job style, I guess, of, 
of um, exactly what you wanted to do the whole time is be a, a generous, I believe that's the term you used earlier, is, is there's a generosity to being a family or family doc or PCP. I think people want that when we flip the script and think about who we want as our care providers. It would be really nice to have somebody who knows you so that each time you relocate, whether it's across town or across the country, which isn't currently the case with medicine, you know, you can take your care provider with you Mm -hmm. and they can understand something else that's in their consciousness about the type of person that you are and also what makes you resilient and able to overcome any stressors or barriers that, you know, you might have. So it's, it's been a real treasure to, to work there for 14 years, but there's also a sense of like uh, selfishness, which I don't think is a bad thing to acknowledge about why we want to do it or what keeps us in it. Tell me about that. Because yeah, there's, they say that 50%, I think of residents who get their first job will leave that job within the first two years. Really? And I think that's across the board. And so I think the thought here is really, you know, like assessing what color is your grass? Is your grass greener really because of something that that you hear your co-resident getting at their clinic? Or how do you make it a job that really enables you to thrive there? Not that the job is really that mutable, but what's your perspective on what you're there, what you have to give, and and what the job has to give back to you? Because you really have to acknowledge that, or you're not going to be there for a long period of time, because we all, all have to feel rewarded in life some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting spin on that. Um, that you need to be selfish because you need to be getting something out of your job so that you can be doing it, um, you know, with your with your full energy and your full uh, heart and soul into it. There's a lot of disillusionment, <laughs> probably lately because of the pandemic, but also because there's these never-ending pressures on us, like electronic health record and every you know a couple of months whatever ehr anybody has will undergo an update or every couple of years we might be changing ehrs um to paperwork to prior auths for medications that aren't on an insurance formulary um, or time pressures or physical pressures like i don't have enough space to do what i need to do financial pressures there's all kinds of pressures out there and it's fair to say you got to look at the other side of the scales and say okay what am i really getting out of this and acknowledge what that is yeah definitely um i think that's a a good place to uh move on to talk about what is your your day-to-day job like what are the realities of of your career and your and your job uh, so can you walk us through just an average day or week if there's not an average day? Sure, sure. 
it's a really interesting question now that we're in the pandemic because everything looks different, right? Right. And you can feel free to give us the pre-pandemic and, you know, mid-pandemic version of that. <laughs> awesome. So uh, pre-pandemic, which is sort of still the case right now, a full day of patients would be, you know, your typical eight to five. I'd say that half of the providers, so DOs, MDs, NPs, and PAs in the clinic, half probably work somewhat during lunch and just lunch at their desks and half try to get out and breathe some fresh air. Mm -hmm. But our regular routine is 20 patients. So our patients get 20 minutes apiece. And so 20 patients is like, you know, your seven slash eight hours. And you just run your list of patients, you know, try to take really good care of them, listen to them, let them have their open-ended moment to speak, and then figure out where it is that you need to take that conversation off the rails that it's on and move on to trying to give them some solutions for what it is that they present with and what they need solved. Yeah, that's... That's uh, it's kind of interesting. I was just thinking you're talking about all you do all day is see patients. You have 20 minute slots and I'm sure sometimes they go over occasionally under, but uh, it doesn't, when you put it that way, it doesn't really seem like there's much of a, much of a variety in your job. But then of course I feel like in, in family practice or in a primary care setting, there's a ton of variety. Anybody can walk through that door with any complaint at any time. And thus you have, you know, a little baby oh, for the 8 a.m. slot. And at 8.20, you have a 95-year-old or anything in between. It's really true that um, cradle-to-grave kind of philosophy of family medicine. Mm -hmm. And there was definitely a decision point somewhere in medical school where I considered doing med-peds, yeah. which is ironic because obstetric care is still one of my um, most common kinds of appointments nowadays mm -hmm. and an area of interest and I dare say an area of expertise that I've grown into, even though I never received prior to being an attending kind of a, you know, specialized guide to providing great obstetric care yeah um so when i thought about med peds it, it struck me as really odd when you're walking along somebody's lifespan with them to say fantastic i've taken care of you as an adult um you tell me you're pregnant i can take care of your baby when your baby's born but right now, I have to absolutely make you disappear off of my patient list and go somewhere else and disengage from you in what is the most tumultuous um, and amazing time of your life. So let's pull the plug on our patient-doctor relationship, and we'll see you in about nine months or so. Yeah, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, so at that point in my med school career, I think... I wasn't really excited necessarily about um, the practice of obstetrics and gynecology, I think, you know, fits well into internal medicine, a bunch of other ways, at least in the outpatient setting. So obstetrics was this weird um, 
speed bump, as it were, that made me kind of reanalyze what I wanted to do. And so if you think about anybody with any condition walking through your doors and can you take care of most of what they have, then that boils down to family medicine. And so it's really exciting when I can have anybody. I can have a newborn, I can have a kid, I can have an obstetric patient. Next door to um, her, I can have somebody who might be in a same-gendered relationship who's dealing with artificial um, insemination as a way to achieve fertility, to grow their family. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I do, which I imagine some people could say makes me really old-fashioned, but I kind of cling to these... um, these ideas still is that I like to do home visits for people who, frankly, shouldn't be walking into our office right now who are really high risk for COVID. So in general, you know, they're 80 years, 90 years old plus. Yeah. And that population's also probably high risk for not being able to work their virtual visits or, you know, make the, the technology work for them to to have that happen too. So that's amazing that you actually go to the patient rather than, you know, send them a link to, to try to figure out. There are definitely some patients who don't do well with telehealth visits. Yeah. And so far we've got audio only. We're trying to add in video, mm-hmm. but it's incredible how um, people with just a little bit of, of um, decline in their cognitive function, can't quite follow the flow of conversation when you're not face-to-face. There's something really human about that face-to-face interaction. And and that actually kind of um, transitions nicely into the next topic um, that I want to get into, which is what are the greatest obstacles to providing care for the population that you work with? You kind of just spoke to the idea of uh, you're working with the older population or the uh, not cognitively um, with it population. So what other um, issues come up for a lot of the patients that you see? You know, I think the one generalizable roadblock that we have in the United States for all patients is cost. And I believe that everybody in the country bears some aspect of cost for their medical care. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any plan out there that is free. You know, whether you're employed and you pay zero dollars as a deductible, zero dollars as a copay, and you get really reliable, great health care. I don't think that exists. Yeah. So, so I'd say cost. And that's a really huge thing, which is a barrier for people. And we can label it adherence um, or level of engagement. But when we put ourselves in their shoes, it's something that we always have to strive to understand. Because in our country, that's a way that healthcare is doled out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I imagine that that means that when you're thinking of the plan for the patient and what you want to do to either diagnose or treat them, 
you're trying to think of all the different tests that you don't need to order or maybe you can wait to order or all the different ways that you can save them money. But are there other kind of things that you're thinking about or talking about when you talk about um, patients dealing with the, the high cost of healthcare? Yeah, I, I think there's a significant amount of people in our country. Um, Medicare would be a good example. So anybody who's retired or is on a fixed income, and that might include a ton of people who are of younger age who are disabled, but it also includes people who are designated as lifelong disabled. So for example, trisomy 21 or Down syndrome qualifies you, a belief to be on Medicare. Mm -hmm. Those people have a fixed income, which means that, you know, X number of dollars is going towards rent and utilities and food and basic necessities. And so you've got, by extension, a fixed amount of dollars left for healthcare and transportation even to a healthcare facility. Um, if it's if it's a telehealth visit and you don't have to actually go into a facility, you might be talking about, do they have a phone plan that's limited on minutes? Mm -hmm. Or do they have somebody who's available to help translate for them if they speak a different language? Which might mean that it's cost, but it's cost in somebody else's time away from their employment or away from their family. So there's always a cost involved to somebody getting care. Yeah. So what, uh, what can you or, or your, um, uh, practice do for people to solve some of those issues for them or to maybe not solve the issues, but, to uh, to address them or help with them? Yeah. So I think federally qualified health centers are designed to be a stopgap for folks who can't access care otherwise. Mm -hmm. And FQHCs actually get paid to provide a broader scope of services that's reimbursed at a higher dollar amount than other practices who provide Medicaid or Medicare services. So FQHCs are able to do more because they're actually given more by the United States government to do things like provide dental outreach to kids. Yeah or diabetics or pregnant moms when they come in for their appointments. Or we can have a care coordinator be assigned to a patient and help them navigate calling their specialist appointment, seeing if they need translation support, to even having lift vouchers so we can get somebody a lift cab ride at our clinic if we know that they need to go to the emergency room, but they came on the bus. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, that uh, like a Lyft voucher or something like that, a, a cab voucher would be, um, at least at your clinic, something that the government is able to provide you and then you provide it to your patients. Is that how that works? Yeah, my understanding is that an FQHC gets a reimbursement rate that's based on the number of patients that you see. And 
it can be changed based on a modicum of their medical complexity. Mm-hmm. So that's another place that's difficult for somebody who wants to go into medicine as a healing profession to jump through hoops of, you know, paperwork or why do I need to pay attention to all this, you know, seemingly non-clinical stuff? Yeah. Because in the end, it's dollars and that still exists, whether we're in FQHC or whether, you know, any of us might work for a nonprofit, much less a for-profit healthcare facility. Mm-hmm. So all of those equations exist and we take this pot of money and we make the best decisions with it that we can. So it's not that we're going to give, you know, a service or a benefit or a lift ride to anybody who comes in, but if their health is going to be negatively impacted by needing to, you know, wait a couple of days to get that antibiotic, we can put that in a fund where a grant will pay for it. Mm-hmm. Or they need their albuterol and they don't have their $6 copay. That's what we call one of our red line medications that can be grant funded that we can always give out. Mm-hmm. So we use the dollars if not having used them is going to affect a patient directly in their health. Yeah. And if it's something that we can use rarely and conscientiously. That's cool. That's a, that's a good point that you need to be good stewards of uh, just that whole setup and that use of funds and the use of that time to uh, deal with, you know, I'm sure you guys take a hit first or I guess you have to provide the albuterol and then you get reimbursed later from uh, the grant or from those funds. Is that how that works? I imagine that's how it works. I have to say that one of the huge perks of my job being employed and getting a fixed salary Mm -hmm. is not having to do that whole brick and mortar solo practice thing where, you know, you almost need an MBA to run your business besides an MD. Yeah. You got to be the administrator, the business manager, the accountant and the doctor and a million other things. The custodian. Exactly. So I can give all of that to somebody else in the administrative side of her office. And, you know, they give me some of the rules on if I can get this for my patient or not. And, you know, how often I use it. And of course, that's all kind of a, a cultural understanding, you know, of your office culture is who can you get this for and who can't you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you um, so you check in with your mates and you see. You know, I've got I've got this person in this scenario. Who do I talk to to get help? And you get directed by uh, the people in the trenches with you on how to help your patient out. That's awesome. That's awesome. We've been talking a lot about money issues and everything from, uh, you know, working with people with not a lot of money or um, the idea of reimbursement from the government. I think that the general consensus between the lay the lay people of the world is that serving the underserved, especially medically, is not a huge money maker. It doesn't reimburse that well, or it doesn't give you a huge salary. Um, 
I wanted to see if you uh, would be willing to talk about the the realities of treating poor populations as it per- pertains to some of those issues, reimbursement to the physician or time spent on each individual patient or case, um, <laughs> and some of the links that you go to, to for your patients is something that you kind of talked about already, but we'll, we can uh, get into those types of topics if you're willing. Yeah, I think there's a lot of questions that are wrapped up in that statement, which is fascinating. Yeah, I gave you a lot. I, I gave you a lot of questions all at once. I'm sorry about that. Let's. Can we start with um, just uh, in in terms of um, reimbursement to the physician or salary to the physician? Yeah, um, salary. So having a fixed salary is clearly something that's you know beneficial for anybody, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. In society, because you have a fixed source of income that you can rely on. Yeah. Uh, it's different all over the world, um, but it's important as a business to know where your income is going to come from. Yeah. So that you can stay afloat. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about continuity and being able to be a care provider for patients over the age, um, spectrum, then there is an assumption that the practice is going to be um, solid and present no matter what happens. So having a salary, the one who's receiving the salary is really nice because you know that you're going to be able to make your payments. Yeah. That also requires that you have enough um, need or demand, as it were, in a business sense, in the community, mm-hmm. to keep your business model afloat. Yeah. So I, I look at some some figures that'll show the average family medicine physician or pediatrician or whatever, um, you know, specialty makes X amount of dollars, and for for primary care family medicine, it's two hundred and forty hundred thousand dollars. Did I say that right? Two hundred. $240,000-ish for the Mm -hmm. average across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there a huge discrepancy between somebody who is working in a super affluent setting versus somebody who's working in a much uh, lower SES setting? I think there is. There definitely is. I think that there's not as much disparity in us as physicians as there are in, you know, basic um, cost of living across the country mm-hmm. in low SES settings. So in that way, being privileged, even with our own income, is something that I'm grateful for. But I also know that a lot of folks that I went to medical school with who may be subspecialized into neuroradiology or interventional radiology with a focus on cardiology or something like that, right? Yeah, something cool and um, fancy. Get compensated at a much different rate. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that all of those rates are at a minimum fair rates of compensation. Okay. That there is probably no physician 
who, and this might be a topic of conversation, you know, let's assume that any physician that we're talking about here is able-bodied, willing to work full-time, capable of generating, you know, that X amount in salary. Okay. Um, is underpaid. You said that no physician, given those circumstances, is underpaid. Um, I know that I'm being an idealist here because, you know, there are certainly folks who are owned by hospital practices Mm -hmm. and they have to see X number of patients. And if the demand's not there, then they're never going to make ends meet. Yeah. But I think the truth of it still is that in our country, as lucky as we are, there are many, many places that don't have access to physicians. And so there's, there's, no scenario where we should be struggling as a class of professionals in the country mm-hmm. with not being able to make an income. But you mentioned um, time, and I kind of want to go down that road a little bit. In treating your patients or treating poor patients versus patients with uh, um, more affluence, is the time spent different? Is it does it need to be different? I imagine that that population of people that you work with has more comorbidities, more complex mm-hmm. history. Do they get the extra time that they need mm-hmm. from you or from from anybody else? I don't know of anybody who would say that they have enough time with their patients. Yeah. Unless you're talking about, you know, a crazy concierge practice that caters to just a handful of families, maybe, Mm -hmm. at a ridiculously high buy-in rate. Yeah. Um, Time is a fixed quantity and one that none of us have enough of. And that definitely uh, rings true in primary care. I think when you're trying to do something as holistic as take care of somebody along the course of their life, there's so many things that we might be asked to um to do to alleviate suffering or to enhance somebody's wellness you know even off the top of my head mental health and physical health from what we're trained in school and residency and beyond takes up way more than a 20 minute visit totally. so we're just briefly grazing on what somebody needs. Yeah, I, that actually brings up an, another topic I want to hit on, which is the differences, or maybe I'll, I'll phrase it as the challenges of the patient pathology and disease that you see versus maybe a suburban family doc. Is there a difference there? And what are the different challenges that you have to go through as well as the patient uh, having to go through as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I, I'm going to try to steer us away from any, um, you know, political or ethical decisions here and just state that at my clinic, we see a lot of undocumented um, Central and South Americans and Mexican Americans. Mm-hmm who have lived here decades and vast majorities of their lives 
the adults included and not just a kid, you know, who might have been brought in as an infant or a three-year-old or a six-year-old who, you know, by definition, if they're 16, they've been here a lot of their lives. I think even those parents or somebody who's who's come over much later in life, uh, you know, I think it's fair to call them, you know, a a country of home birth slash American because they've lived a long time here. They have a whole set of different needs because they don't have, they don't qualify for, they cannot purchase insurance in the United States. We've effectively blocked them out so fiercely that without a social security number, you cannot go out there and purchase a plan no matter how much money you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of their illnesses, it's something curious to watch an immigrant of any country come here and start to eat a typical American diet or engage in a typical American way of life, which leads us to have so many health problems. It's um, it's this clash of their excitement and their energy at being an immigrant in a nation where you can achieve if you work hard enough and being given or, you know, almost being um, be, becoming prey to these forces of our society, like fast food and cars and, you know, lack of you know, being a pedestrian and having that as an outlet for exercise. They also have incredible kinds of illnesses that we just don't see here anymore. Um, So we see a lot of tuberculosis exposure still. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of uh, valvular heart disease that might present as a young child that's congenital or that might present as an adult with uh, frank heart failure because they didn't have the infrastructure in their country to deal with that where they were when they were young. And then there's all kinds of infectious diseases that we deal with. And we didn't, thankfully, we didn't see much Ebola here. Um, Now we're seeing coronavirus and all kinds of new things and we're always going to have to keep an eye open for the geographic origin um, of somebody's um, of, of a particular patient's upbringing and that'll speak to kind of what some of their risks are so um, how does health disparity you know we talked about how it presents, but what can a physician and a practice and a healthcare system do about that? Uh, and I'm kind of thinking about the question um, from a, a single provider, a single, you know, small practice, not, uh, not the healthcare system as a whole right now, but maybe we can get there, uh, you know, sometime in the next couple of questions or topics, but but what can you as a provider, what can your practice do to combat health disparities? Yeah, that's a big question. 
And I think it has a couple of pretty concrete answers. I think one is being willing to really have a two-way conversation because there's probably a lot of truth to saying that none of us as physicians is really going to be able to fully understand, um, as it were, walk a mile in their shoes um, of any of our patients. And so the responsibility for ensuring a two-way conversation lies on us because we're in a position of power. Uh, who is that two-way conversation with? Uh, the patient. So the patient knows best what is available to them. I see. So if they tell you they can't exercise, then the next question is, you know, tell me more about that instead of, no, I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. So that sounds like you're, um, you know, from a, a patient, uh, a physician patient relationship perspective, you're really engaging in, in a motivational interviewing, um, style of, of question, questioning or treatment or listening. Uh, maybe you're saying that that happens more in this setting than it would in a, a different primary care setting. I think it's really easy for us to be prescriptive. Um, paternalistic, yeah. you know, was, was something that got bandied about, especially as I was in training. And we know that that just doesn't give us as good health health outcomes as being in a cooperative relationship. Um, both parties, you know, uh, physician and patient, but really we're on much larger teams, right? Our teams and our patient's family is a team, for example, in trying to get to whatever outcome that patient is going to identify as their outcome. Because we might push for, let's say, a type 2 diabetic to get to an A1C of 7% because they're young and that's their target. A1C, um, you know, as recommended to us by the USPSTF. Okay. And they might be sitting at a 14. And there's no way that they're going to come out and say, oh, I really want to get to a 7, right? Yeah. I mean, there's... There's no motivational interviewer who's going to be able to elicit or change that person's mind to say, 10 out of 10, I believe I should get there. And 10 out of 10, I definitely can get there. Right. That's, you know, a chasm way too wide to cross. So it's about incremental change. And how do you get them to identify something that they want to move towards and something that's motivating enough for them to move towards and we have to celebrate those tiny little victories and teach them that it's okay to celebrate that and that we're incredibly proud of them because sometimes they might not have felt that in their life before yeah that's a really good perspective on it especially when you have such a uh, long-term relationship with a patient then you can really take small steps to get to your goal because you're thinking you're, you know you're playing the long game and hopefully hopefully they are too but you can you know both uh, agree on small steps to get there as i think about 
numbers. I'm thinking about how much we get graded as well, as if it were that easy, right? Like us who have taken tests to get into, you know, to get into college, to get into med school, to get into residency. Like there are these numerical values that assess our worth. And a numerical value is a very concrete thing that we wish could assess somebody's worth. But it doesn't mean that somebody who's moved their A1C from 14 to 12 is trying any less or deserves any less benefit or attention than somebody who moved their A1C in equal two points. Maybe they moved it from nine to seven. Mm -hmm. And somehow we're really so much happier seeing that A1C of seven at the end of the day because 12 to us just seems like a failure. Like, you know what that oncoming freight train looks like in terms of complications and, and later life disease. But we really have to learn to see it from their perspective, that, that it is a really good job that they're doing. Totally. And, and that the last thing you just said there really made me think of uh, my own biases, our own biases. We all have them no matter who we are, and especially physicians. We are in such a, a world of all the, the basic sciences and then the clinical sciences. And, and we know so much about the human body and about medicine. And the patients ne don't necessarily aren't on that level. So we just have a different perspective on what the actual conversation we're having with the patient is than they do. Um, that being said, how does one, uh, and I'll <laughs> just ask you personally, how do you uh, manage your implicit biases in an everyday setting or day-to-day -day setting or, or kind of uh, long-term? I think that's hard. Um, we all have them, right? And we, as uh, primary care providers, will eventually attract a panel of patients that are okay with our biases. And we are going to be okay with their biases, right? If you flip that on, their, on, on its head, we're not going to be okay with some people's bias. So I'm thinking about some folks who I've had to come to the conclusion that terminating our physician-patient relationship was an appropriate thing for both parties, and they'd get better health health outcomes with somebody else. Um, and there's certainly um, a huge percentage of patients who will terminate their, you know, patient-physician relationship with us because they didn't like the way that we treated them, um, or they didn't think that we understood what they were going through or just a manner of pure preference, which is of course a bias as well. Mm -hmm. So they exist. And how do we make that incremental change so that we can work with more people? That's a tough question. And I think one that we just have to be open to learning more about, to be able to receive criticism which is a really hard place to be once you once once we think and we perceive that we've climbed this long road to a holy grail of having letters behind our name. Yeah. Well, that's a good answer. Um is there anything that you 
actively do or would active or would recommend people actively pursue to help themselves be a more anti-racist uh provider or or person in general do you have any kind of um hmm. i don't know resources books um documentaries any anything on your mind by the way you don't have to i'm just kind of uh putting that yeah. out there if you if if anything has helped you or, or that you mm-hmm. like to recommend. You know, I think humility plays a really big part in this. And it's probably a mindset rather than homework to be done or a checkbox to be completed. It's a sense that somebody else has the answer. Um, somebody else can be better than we are. And only through seeing that there's an alternative that exists in which we don't play part of that role or we're not in that story anymore, can we really achieve that change? So as much as I say that, you know, Spanish and English are my two primary languages, I personally have a bias that I think it's really hard to take care of a fellow Chinese-American or Asian-American. Even if I was born here, there's so many reasons that I didn't get a chance to learn the language or haven't been able to acquire it Mm -hmm. despite trying. And so they might see my name. They might say, oh, that person might treat me better because she might share my language or she might identify with me. And I'm in reality kind of blinded by tripping over the fact that they, you know, look like somebody I might know personally instead of professionally or treat them as, you know, as I would a family member who might be their age and who might be their demographic. And so I may be no better. In fact, I may be worse than somebody else at taking care of that patient. Um, Likewise, I hope that I will be replaced in taking care of my Spanish-speaking patients or my English-speaking patients or my French-speaking African patient by somebody who they identify with because that's what they want, right? It's who they feel comfortable with. And there's probably some huge societal um, elements here, you know, about... Do we, do we need to have care providers that look like us or that look different from us? Or, you know, who are the right crew of people, the cohort of providers to take care of some cohort of human being when, you know, we really know all we need to know about human physiology, no matter what language we speak or what color we are on the outside. Shouldn't that be enough? Um, but I hope I get replaced by somebody who a patient feels more comfortable with. And studies show that if there's a language parity and beyond that, but less so an ethnic parity, then folks actually get better health outcomes. Yeah. Does Is there a, a way in your mind that we can promote um, more ethnic diversity, racial diversity, and just diversity in general in selecting people who are going to be into in med school, selecting future providers 
I guess not necessarily just med school, but dentists and PAs and mm-hmm. NPs and and all of the uh, providers out there. Yeah, yeah. There's there there are so many ways, and yet, like, I think about that analogy when we're when we're picking apples off the apple tree. You want to go for the low hanging fruit, right? Mm-hmm. The really ripe, easy to access answers that are right there in front of us. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is just probably influencing the young people that we see along the way, whether they're our patients or patients, family members, or our family members. Um, There are so many times that I ask a question to elementary school age kids, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I get the answer, oh, I want to be a nurse, or I want to be a doctor, or I specifically want to be a heart surgeon because I had a friend who needed heart surgery or something. And it's probably the best thing that we can do to empower that generation to say, absolutely. Yes, you can. That may go further. Um, I fear than anything else that seems like it's slow as molasses to change. Yeah, it definitely is. And and I think that's a okay thing. I think of a lot of the things that change rapidly, they change rapidly back and forth. And Mm -hmm. I think when things change slowly and can be frustrating, whether it be the things with policy or the United States government. I think ultimately it's better than having a really volatile, rapid change back and forth. And, and, Mm -hmm. and likewise, what you just spoke to is that it's a generational thing. That's a natural thing where we have the progression uh, and evolution of different um, ethnicities entering healthcare over the course of generations or time that if, if it can evolve slowly, then it's then great. Then it's evolving. Yeah. There's definitely some, some hope there. Lots of hope for our future, right? That just by being humble and accepting um, critique of where we are, being willing to self-critique, you know, uh, are there a patient, are there a subset of patients who I'm not catering to, who I'm making feel unwelcome by what I'm doing, you know, kind of being willing to look at your outcomes, right? So a surgeon may look at their outcomes and say, oh, this is my rate of, you know, post-surgical infections for this particular kind of surgery. And somebody in primary care has a corollary to that in terms of clinical outcomes, like, oh, these are my percent of people who have an A1C between seven and eight or less than nine or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so if we're looking at healthcare disparities, we have to look at, does that change based on um, what race a patient self-identifies as? Does that change depending on their gender? Does that change based on, you know, whatever characteristic you want to look at? and really be willing to see where those disparities sit. And then probably asking those patients, why is it this way? Because I don't think we know those answers. All right. Well, I want to uh, continue on this topic and, and kind of transition to the healthcare policy of the United States. Um, I don't expect you to be an expert 
But I do have some questions and some uh, listener questions, listener submitted questions for you about these topics. So um, I guess the first one is how does our healthcare system succeed for patients of low socioeconomic status? And then also I want to ask is how does it fail those same patients? Yeah, I mean, I think actually as a society of Americans, we have put a lot of weight into taking care of women and children. So that's usually where Medicaid comes into play because they have coverage for specific age categories or specific conditions, including pregnancy. We also have programs that cater to children to make things feel very equal for them. You know, public school probably being, you know, um, one of our best um, social enterprises. Mm -hmm. and, um, And we have more work to do. So Medicaid covers a huge percent of the population anywhere. So we have to ask and be willing to listen from physicians who don't accept Medicaid, why that is. And really, I, when I talk to my friends who were in that position, it's because the reimbursement is so pitiful that the more of them they see, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The less of them they'll be able to see to continue to make their bottom line um, meet neutral. So if you see more of them, you're losing more money with each person that you see compared to somebody who's insured. How will you ever get to a place where, you know, you can take care of a representative sample of the population? So it succeeds in giving that health insurance to a lot of people. But the way the payment is set up, it's, you know, it's set up to fail for a great percentage of caregivers. Yeah, wow. That's uh, it's kind of powerful when you think about that. If you get reimbursed less for people who have less, then you're just going to, over time, it's going to be natural to just gravitate more towards getting paid more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I want to, I want to throw in a listener question here. Listener Remy, uh, who happens to be a friend of mine. Um, he asks, how would you fix or change the healthcare system in this country? So now you, ha- you have a magic wand and, uh, I'm giving you the magic wand and, and I want you to not hold back, do anything and everything that uh, you want to do to, to fix the healthcare system in uh, America. Yeah. I dream of the day when everybody has healthcare, right. And, mm-hmm. and there are many paths by which we could achieve that. Obamacare did a heck of a lot to help American citizens achieve healthcare when they otherwise couldn't afford it. Um, My personal belief is that as a society, we have to prize giving everybody in the country um, 
and I and I wouldn't I wouldn't be wrong to reflect my feelings as you know who is here legally with an intent to reside here as part of the community access to health so I think the easiest way for me to say there's a solution right now and that solution is is to say socialized health care and it's got its own problems sure but there's no other label that comes as close to what i think we should all have which is that health care should be separate from money because i think it's a basic need basic right when we say we're willing to accept that this human being doesn't deserve to be as healthy as some other human being, we're accepting that we're biased and prejudiced and elitist because we deserve those things, but somebody else doesn't. And at our core, I think we're really better than that, where we can come together and say, you know what? This neighbor of mine and that neighbor of mine, whether they're an acre away or a house away or next door in my apartment building, we all deserve to achieve health. Yeah, that's a, a beautiful and, and simple answer, actually, um, to a complex problem. Now, how, how realistic do you think that is on, on any sort of uh, near horizon of us actually making a a big change in that way to make our healthcare system uh, more of a, a socialized healthcare system. Is that something that we're actually on the cusp of? Is that something that is going to take many more decades or never or somewhere in between? I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime is the realistic answer. Yeah. I'm, I'm in my early 40s. Um, so let's say another half a decade being very generous with longevity. Um, I, I still don't know if I believe that that's going to happen, but I do know that as we continue to have, um, different infectious diseases, worse healthcare in, sorry, worse health in a greater percentage of our population as we move into urban settings and deal with crowding and pollution um, is that we're going to care about it more as a society. And it's not a zero-sum game. Like, we can all achieve healthcare and be better for it. We don't have to penalize somebody so that we can have better health. It's, it can be doable for all of us. And if we just want to continue to hope and work toward a future where we prize our health, um, we'll get there. And we are doing it by force of the pandemic right now. You know, if we prize our health, we might stay in. If we prize our health, we might go out and exercise. And if we're ill, it seems to be the trend that we're certainly, as a group of people, trying to spread the word and say, you know, this COVID infection is not compatible with health. So this is what I wish I would have done if I could have turned back the hands of time. 
I um, think that this pandemic has been definitely a, a, an, an eye opener for a lot of people. Some people have taken the opportunity to do the things that you said, to stay in more as to avoid getting the respiratory infection, COVID-19. They've been going out more uh, or exercising more, getting in better shape or taking more uh, vitamins or healthy food in. Um, And it's kind of interesting to me that both those things are happening at once. Some people are taking it as a time to, you know, gain weight and exercise less. And some people are taking it and, and maybe, you know, drink more alcohol or whatever that we've deemed a, uh, a, uh, essential business. And, you know, some people are going the opposite direction. So it's very interesting. I imagine that our healthcare system can kind of go in two different ways from there as well. We can, yeah, we can, uh, uh COVID has done, um, as an aside for some of my diabetic patients, what I could not have done, what really? I have not done tell in the me, last decade. Tell me everything. Uh, you know, when they hear a statistic that people who are overweight or obese or have diabetes, you know, that's an inherent risk factor for dying from COVID. Yeah, man, there have been, I think, at least three patients of mine who've gone from an A1C of greater than nine to suddenly six and a half just by you know, taking care of themselves in a way where I'm not even part of that equation, right? Yeah. I mean, these are not medication issues. These aren't, you know, access to gyms because they were all closed at the beginning of the pandemic. This is, you know, purchasing what you need to purchase that's, you know, that's nutritious for your body and using your body as as a finely tuned machine, which we want it to be. It is so crazy how low tech that some of these solutions to big problems in in the country are. Diabetes is a huge problem. Metabolic syndrome, obesity, uh, hypertension. These are huge problems. doesn't take that much to solve them. As you're seeing from your patients, getting some daily movement in. We don't even have to call it exercise. Uh, Eating a little bit healthier would probably make a big difference. It doesn't have to be... uh, you know, you're going from, you know, a horrible eater or unhealthy eater to somebody who's, you know, perfect model student eater, but just making some modifications in diet, movement, maybe, maybe sleep. I don't know. Other, other, um, these low tech mm-hmm. solutions to, to, uh, health issues are, are, are fascinating to me. And that's kind of, uh, one thing that, I guess, draws me towards primary care and, and family medicine. You know, it, it is low tech. It is. And I still fight with myself accepting that it is low tech, but that doesn't mean it's easy, right? Totally. That habits are the toughest thing that we can change in ourselves. And in people who we call our patients, our clients, because anything that's culturally appropriate is usually going to win over something that is, you know, factually correct. I think I've heard somewhere Mm -hmm. that what is, what has been the case is more frequently done than what is supposed to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to overcome the ways 
where we grew up or the ways we got parented, uh, the ways we ate, you know, and it, and when we know better, then we have to do better, like Maya Angelou says. Yeah, definitely. And 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 you're totally right. I didn't mean to make it seem like it was an easy for yeah. an easy solution. It just, uh, you know, obviously changing habits, decades long habits are some of the most difficult things to do in in all the world. So so it's definitely a, a, a big undertaking to even make a small change in your life. And, and like you said, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And that goes on a societal mm-hmm. level at, and an individual level. Yeah. It's like, you know, on the one hand, we know, we can know where we want to go with public health and we can envision what it is for everybody to be healthy, but getting there can take a crazy long time and so much effort when you have one person sitting in front of you and you're trying to ask them what health looks like for them and what it has looked like has you know probably been the pattern for their whole life and you know maybe the generation ahead of them there's certainly a lot of generational trauma or generational stress that affects people and what we do is kind of what we were taught to do and we're just trying to bend the curve or change that model ever so slightly so that we can do better Definitely. And you're, and you're kind of answering uh, listener Remy's next question that he submitted for you, which is what causes non-compliance? You've t- talked about a number of, of issues um, uh, causing non-compliance. I know that sometimes that's called non-adherence to, uh, to mm-hmm. have a, a little bit less of a, a judgmental spin on, on the, the same sentiment. Uh, you know, you talked about not having enough money to access care, not having insurance, not having um, the continuity of care. You've brought up um, the issues that we just talked about with uh, um, cultural issues or just the environment that we live in. Um, is there anything else that you want to throw in there for big things that maybe future providers can keep in, in their mind as what is causing this patient to not follow the plan? Yeah. Um, I think there's one really big thing, which is that uh, physician-patient relationship, as it were, that we keep on coming back to as, you know, that holy grail of, of what you want. And maybe that's going to help health more than anything else in the long run. What? So, so thus I'd ask, what are the things that might harm that relationship? So is there anything that any one physician, any one care provider can do or maybe not do that's going to keep that person coming back? And I can say that I'm definitely biased as anybody in this situation would be to hearing the answers of the people who keep on coming back to me, right? Because I don't have access to the answers that somebody would give me if they're not going to come back to me. Fair enough. So define that way um, when people tell us, you know, you're able to say that in a different way or you're different or I haven't met somebody like you or this is the last 
traumatic physician-patient relationship that I went through. And this is why I didn't come back for six years when I, you know, have been living with an A1C of 14 or something like that mm-hmm. is just as much a part of what we are responsible for that we have to listen and absorb and apologize for, in my opinion, as a unit of our profession of doctors, if we want to have their buy-in. So somebody might've been told before you are, you know, uh, insert here any prejudiced label that you want to insert, right? Okay. So a common one that a patient might tell me is, I was told I was fat. And I went home and cried and never went back Yeah. to that care provider. You know, it's probably just the, the, the flip side of our relationship with a patient being capable of being such a beautiful thing is it's capable of being something that could be really harmful and we never want it to be unconsciously harmful. Yeah. That, that is a, a a really good thought uh, and a good um, just sentiment is that we're, I think as any provider is legitimately trying their best, or at least let's, let's assume the best Mm -hmm. there. And even in doing so, we're going to accidentally hurt people. Um, And whether that be in a, in a physical way, you accidentally, I don't know, uh, had to, had to poke them a couple times to start an IV or something like that, or, you know, all sorts of uh, risks that go along with the procedure, but also in an emotional way that same thing, it's, it's actually, there are benefits and risks to engaging in that emotional relationship with someone. Hmm. I like the way that you put that. Yeah. Well, um, you set it up. So <laughs> I was, I, I was just kind of summarizing everything that you just said there. Cause it was a good thought you had, um, and a good, uh, perspective you take on that. So I want to kind of, I think I would be remiss if I didn't hit some of these, uh, questions from listener Gus who submitted a uh, handful of really good, insightful questions that I don't think we've gotten to some of them. So um, if you still have the time for us, then uh, I'd love to hit up some of his questions. Uh, So listener Gus writes in, what healthcare model facilitates the best patient outcomes for underserved populations? Is it direct primary care, walk-in, Healthcare home. These are just some examples that he gives. But uh, what healthcare model facilitates the best outcomes for underserved populations? Yeah, I'm going to say continuity again, because continuity is something that comes up that I believe is unfortunately becoming um, less common, especially as our, our nation, our planet opens up to us. We have so many options for travel or relocation or working remotely, which means you could be in a completely different place, residing in a completely different place and, you know, where your employer is. Mm -hmm. Continuity has been shown to have a huge impact. I don't know that there's any particular study I can 
point you to, um, but the IHI does a lot of work on continuity in the healthcare home. So I imagine a brief Google search for IHI and continuity would um, lead a reader to a lot of great articles on why it's so important. And when I think about continuity with the underserved population, it's it's really about a provider staying put in the same place. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of where we are as um, docs or docs in training, it's probably the norm to have relocated somewhere along the way. Yeah. For a career opportunity. And when we talk about who's going to serve these patients in this community, you know, you can say uh, Five Points, you can say Montbello um, are places where low SES, unfortunately, has existed historically and where um, poor health com- poor health outcomes and level of violent crime are on the rise. Um, who are the care providers who are going to pick a community like that? Or pick a community, you know, w- which is a rural community um, on the western slope where they might not have had a community doc in a while. They might be relying on an NP or a PA and they might switch every couple of years. How are you going to commit yourself to saying, I'm going to be that person? How do you craft your practice so that you get what you need from it and stay with them and get that sense of fulfillment? And let's be frank, once you get to know your patient population, nobody wants to go through building your panel up again. So there's an inherent detractor to moving away too you know, other than your patients suffer. Like we as care providers actually suffer when sometimes we think the grass is greener because we're going to pick up everything and move. And then you've got your panel of, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand human beings to get to know again. Whereas all those couple of thousand human beings that you knew now get linked, hopefully to somebody else who now doesn't know them either. Yeah, well, I think I think you've uh, definitely given us a lot to think about in the idea of continuity of care being like the name of the game. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, next question from Gus. He's got a couple more for you. Uh, what is your experience with Medicare and Medicaid? What are ways in which you think it could be improved to better serve those underserved populations? You kind of talked about some points there. Uh, already. Do you have anything to add to uh, that topic? Ooh, um, yeah. I wish people wouldn't see Medicaid as such a golden ticket because it's just as easy for any care provider to get lulled into overutilizing care Mm -hmm. as it is for an insurance system or a a care um, algorithm where it's closely policed. So we got to be good stewards of a program that benefits many and, you know, not over order testing, not over prescribe antibiotics, you know, to push back on um, myths and prior failures. 
I love uh, I love your concept. You've had a couple of uh, topics or uh, uh, themes that you've uh, I noticed are repeating, and one is stewardship of just resources, and another is continuity of care. So I'm I'm gonna be thinking about those topics for a while now. Um, what are ways in which we as physicians can best advocate for our underserved patients when speaking with insurance companies? What is something that, what are some things that we should not do? Mm. When we take this to kind of a granular one-on-one level, right? We are probably not getting face-to-face or live speaking time with somebody on the other end of the insurance spectrum. Mm-hmm. Because just to connect to somebody, right, it's going to require so many transfers that yeah. we don't have time for that in our day. And I think that's something that's kind of like non-clinical, right? Even mm-hmm. if your patient needs that med to achieve a good outcome, that's something that we dread. And, and and for most of us, you know, leaves such a distaste or dissatisfaction from that experience yeah. um, that it's, it's not a common practice that we get to actually have a good conversation with somebody in insurance. So most of the ways that I've interacted with folks via insurance is just having a good knowledge of what the rules are mm-hmm. and trying to translate them to patients in a way that portrays them as not necessarily bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people who make the rules, and I've been an administrator before in my practice, are level-headed human beings who are doing the best at what they can do. So right. if we're going to talk about, yeah, giving the patient the benefit of the doubt, we have to give our colleagues and our administrators the benefit of the doubt, which is to say that, you know, they're clearly not out there trying to harm anybody. Um, you know, one medication of this brand name may not be a heck of a lot better than another. And if it is, we just have to hope that in the future, the changes are going to get made. Um, it shouldn't be hard for us to get our patients the best in care, right? If, if it is, there's a bigger systematic problem than everybody needing to call an insurance company to make appeals for how can I get this for my patient? So maybe that systematic issue, if there is one, requires a systematic answer, which is don't be afraid to advocate. Don't be afraid to be a part of the um, process of governance, um, whether that's involvement in the CAFP and their policies and issues day when we think that, you know, walking into the state house requires a day of our time. Okay, well, that's 20 less people that I'm taking care of. But if we can convey what our patients go through to those that write those policy decisions, then maybe that's worthwhile and we've had a bigger win. Awesome. Well, um, let's, uh, let's end on, uh, another question from, from Gus, uh, or maybe there's kind of two questions thrown in here, but I really okay. like this last one here is what are ways in which we can encourage our, our colleagues to join us 
in serving the underserved? What are ways in which we can encourage administrations to help us facilitate that care? I guess let's start with the first one. How can we encourage colleagues to join in serving the underserved? I think deep down in our hearts, you know, we all we all have the same desire, a shared hope for helping people that to go through something as arduous as medical school requires us to be bright people, but also probably good people to have gone through those experiences, you know, volunteering and helping that will glow on an application Mm -hmm. that gets accepted. So there are tons of ways that people can help and none of them is any greater or less than any others. So while what I've done may be viewed in some kind of societal light as doing something great, there are tons of people out there doing great things all the time. So, you know, a surgeon who might get valued via RVUs and make a profit who can't see Medicaid patients here at a cost, you know, to his um, financial bottom line, maybe taking off a couple of months and maybe doing a mission trip to some other part of the world and is helping people that way. Yeah, I think we all have a way that we help people and just, you know, engaging in that conversation and saying, hey, I've got, you know, this group of people with this need and being able to talk to our neighbors openly without judgment, which I'm really grateful for having received from you, Ross, um, is something that we should move forwards with just to keep the keep the conversation going. Awesome. Well, I'm tempted to just uh, end our conversation on a compliment to me. Uh, as well you could. It's your <laughs> podcast. That's true. I can do whatever I want. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I just want to really thank you for your time and uh, talking to me for, for uh, geez, almost two hours here. Uh, cool. And uh, getting in, the, in depth in, in a lot of topics um, that I know are near and dear to your heart and your, and your career and your practice and, and telling us uh, – uh, all sorts of um, different deep things about the field of medicine and and your everyday life. Hey, it was um, cool to get to share my take. Um, But Ross, I hope you know that if you ever need a hand in the future, one of the things that I love doing is um, just helping, you know, a younger learner move forward. Um, My mom was a high school teacher for her entire career. So I, I hope that some of that brushed off on me. Okay, so you can, can always turn to me or you can um, direct your listeners um, to find me on the World Wide Web. And I'd be happy yeah. to guide anybody to what they think of as a you know better version of themselves. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate that personally. And, and, um, why don't you throw out your, your website or your uh, contact information, anything you want people to know to uh, get a hold of you or just find out more about any sort of uh, resources that you have? Yeah, well, 
check out our practice. Our practice is uh, composed of more than 100 providers, um, which is uh, DOMD, NP or PA. Mm -hmm. And we take care of patients in the Adams, uh, Boulder, and Broomfield counties. And that practice is called Clinica Family Health. That's clinic with an A on the end. And our website is at clinica.org. We've done a lot of work and are really proud to be recipients, as far as we're aware, of the first uh, patient-centered medical home level three rating in the nation amongst federally qualified health centers. Um, and we take students and we're always happy to have colleagues come join us and work with us um, in doing something that really makes you feel like you've made a difference. Awesome. That's, uh, that's really cool. And people can reach out to you uh, through the website. Is that a good way to contact you? Yeah. And my work email, which I'll list here is C-C-H-E-N. So first, first initial last name, C-Chen for uh, Carolyn Chen. So C-Chen at clinica.org. And I it would be excited to hear from a variety of who your listeners are, Ross. Um, and that's going to be anybody who's interested in primary care. I think that's a thrilling place to be in a place that you'll develop a lot of great relationships and pride from. Awesome. Do you take students, um, you know, in an official way? I have always taken students up until the pandemic. Oh, no. Things are a little bit complicated (laughs) now, but I've tried to take actually more teacher courses in how to be a better preceptor during the pandemic, which is not shying away from teaching people how to do telehealth because, you know, we're all pros at this. We've been doing this for some seven months now. Right. So (laughs) that gives us some kind of leg up on pre-pandemic folks um yeah happy to take students that's one thing that i really treasure um and trying to get better on so if you have any listeners who've got insight into that send them (laughs) my way to teach me how to become a better teacher (laughs) awesome awesome do you have any uh last words for us any uh inspirational quotes or ideas or thoughts or uh, uh anything to sign off on Sure. I'd say thank you, Ross, for opening up the world of primary care um, to your listener base, because primary care is a beautiful place to be. Um, It's a it's a great specialty to have some blinders on and continue with the mission of why we went into medicine in the first place. Awesome. That's a great note to go out on. So thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Ross. I also hope personally that you get some time off. Thanks for your two hours because inpatient medicine is no joke. And I'm sure you're back at it soon. You're absolutely right. I am back at it tomorrow morning, bright and early. Or I guess dark and early is really how it is dark and early all right well hats off to you you'll be out of the woods at some point it really does get a whole lot better awesome good good to hear all right thanks a lot take care thanks a bunch you too 
Wow, that was a really good episode in my mind. I thought we did a, a great job navigating the waters there and getting into some difficult topics and some really interesting topics. And of course, it was a really long episode. So thank you for sticking around until the end. If you're still listening, you're a, a super fan and a, a true believer in the power of medicine and making connections with people and the importance of primary care. So please subscribe to the show if you don't already. Leave a review, a comment. I think you can leave a rating. Reach out to me at the primary care podcast at gmail.com and let's get the health out of here. Her uterus was the universe, and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. Nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves. It was a fight for survival. Many died though, friends were formed to fight mutual rivals. Man and woman appeared, and they realized there was a thing called love, bringing joy into their lives. Boom, they were civilized, went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne. Built empires, and the story's well known. History ticks along like a metronome And then I came to be Learned to walk, talk, and throw stuff All grown up, I got a job Now and showing up I'm sleep deprived I'm misaligned My appetite is primed To feed the ego almost all the time And then I met you Lovely and smooth You quickly removed My modern man's blues I wanna celebrate Every breath that I take Cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming And I don't wanna wait So baby, let me grab a hold Of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow Into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold Body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe. But I left to pursue the search of love But sometimes it hurt along the way If there's anything I've learned Create a garden Plant flowers in the dirt I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain Protect you from the pain As I push you toward the flames Play the game and wonder Am I the hunted or the hunter? When I was younger I met God and I hugged her She said, hey baby Instead of getting lost within How about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin Stop, begin Let the thoughts and visions Guide you further down the road Going inch by inch Don't sprint it slow, protect your soul, travel long and far, but make sure to come home, cause the love that's here is what keeps you going, and gives you the power and the freedom to grow, let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress, this life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best, when life gets complex, don't think, just do it first, it was simpler, when the uterus was so baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know, baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna Body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. And then I met you. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my walk a mile in my moccasin. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. to come home. The uterus was my universe. And then I met you. The uterus was my universe. This 
All conversation and information exchanged and contained in the podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are both certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So the forever gonna grow into something we don't know.